This Week on Art on the Air features Herb Helm, a self-taught watercolor artist whose art journey began in his mid-40s and is now teaching workshops. Next, we feature Indiana Dunes National Park's visual information specialist, Jeff Manusak, discussing the Artist-in-Residence program and the current exhibit of past artists at Chesterton Arts Center. Our spotlight is on Footlight Player's upcoming production of the musical Oliver. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM and WVLP, 103.1 FM. Our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming at WVLP.org, and every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, also streaming live at LakeshorePublicRadio.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art on the Air is available on our website, breck.com AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our shows are available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for more information about upcoming shows and interviews. We'd like to welcome to Art in the Air Spotlight from the Footlight Players, who are the grand production of Oliver, opening March 3rd all the way through the 19th. We have Laura Meyer, who's the director of the production, and Tom Laconi, who's playing that character, Mr. Bumble. And they're going to tell us a little bit about the show, where they're at on that. Welcome to Art on the Air Spotlight. Thank you. Aloha, welcome. So, Laura, tell us about uh, the choice of picking Oliver. That's a perennial favorite, at least uh, three hit songs that are in the show. But tell us about the casting, the process, and uh, where you're at on that. Well, first of all, uh, this is my third time directing this show, so uh, I'm kind of an old pro at Oliver. (laughs) Uh, We held auditions, and I found my perfect Oliver like I do every time. He's a little young, though. He's only eight, and I was thinking he looks a little older than that. Right. So it's been a little bit of a struggle, but he's doing just fine. Yeah, it's a tough show for someone that young. I mean, to put in there, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot on their shoulders. So, and uh, so your casting process, when did you start doing that? Oh, we did that. Actually, we did that the first part of December because of the holidays. I wanted to get it cast before we started rehearsing so we could kind of plan it out. So I cast it the first part of December. We, had, we held auditions two nights. I had. Lots of people come out, and I used all of them. We have 36 in the cast, 16 of which are children between the ages of 6 and 18. In the cast, you have like half the Kilbourne family. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) How fun. Well, and there's a a gentleman in the cast also with three 
three of his children are in it too. So it's kind of a family affair, and I I like that. It's It's very sweet. Now, you, Tom, are playing a character that's actually sort of the, uh, somewhat of the evil character, not the biggest evil character in the show. But tell us a little bit about Mr. Bumble and about that. Oh, yes, Mr. Bumble runs the workhouse where all the orphan boys are, and they are, he's not a very nice person, but uh, he he keeps them in line, and uh, it's it's kind of a fun part. I've done it once before, about 20 years ago. Okay. And... uh, I like the songs. Oh sure. Of course, I'm I'm probably in the first forty minutes of the show, and then I'm in again, maybe just for a few minutes here and there. So all my stuff comes right at the beginning. And of course, Oliver gets to deliver probably one of the most famous lines from the show. Please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your acting background. What are the other shows have you done? Um, well, started when I was in high school with uh, Brigadoon. Okay. What'd you play in Brigadoon? Played Tommy. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then uh, 50 years later, I played Tommy again at Footlight Theater a couple years ago. <laughs> so that was interesting. The first time I did it, I was probably a little young for the part. And the last time, I was probably a little old for the part. But in theater, but, it's uh, all about the magic, right? Uh, what other productions have you been in? Uh, been in Guys and Dolls, I think, three times. As? Uh, Brigadoon twice. Uh, no, but what did you play in Guys and Dolls? Uh, once I was Nicely Nicely. Once I was one of the gambler, I can't remember his name. And then the third time I was just in the chorus, but okay. it was a big chorus. It was a nice production. And um, I've done shows at Dunes Summer Theater and at Laporte Little Theater. Most of the work I've done, though, has been in Michigan City at Footlight. Uh, my daughter is in this show. She plays Nancy. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she and I were in Sound of Music last year. And I was Max, and she was Maria. Oh, okay. Oh, so and special. The, yeah. And the first time I did played Mr. Bumble in uh, Oliver was about 20 years ago, and she was one of the orphans in that show. <laughs> so Amazing how it comes out. Laura, tell us about, do you have any, any acting experience, and what, what is that? Well, I started at the age of nine. Okay. I was in an R-Gang comedy that was filmed in Michigan City way back then. And I joined Footlight Theater in the late 60s, and I've been in and out of Footlight since, since then for, you know, personal reasons sometimes. But uh, I've done a lot, a lot of shows. I played Winifred in Once Upon a Mattress. Oh, I yeah. Played, um, Nellie Forbush in South, in South Pacific, but that was quite a few years ago. Although I was 45 the last time I played Winifred. <laughs> So, <laughs> sometimes you have to just kind of push the the envelope. <laughs> sure. Well, and when it comes to acting, you're portraying someone. You don't have to necessarily be that character and everything right. uh, and such like that. Makeup does a lot of good. <laughs> <laughs> Makeup and costuming. You can cover a lot of faults there and everything. Right. So I know. I would like to know what it's like to play, um, like you said, Mr. Bumble 20 years ago and then now. I mean, what do you think... Um, what do you think you're bringing to it now that you didn't then? Um, uh, even though I was fairly old back when I did that one, um, a lot more maturity, I think. I think I know the part better now. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a fun part, but like I said, he's not a very nice guy. <laughs> no, he isn't. I'm a, I'm a firm believer of the, those are the juicy parts. You know, the ingenues are not as much fun as 
the, the characters. Right, that that's true. So, well, we were almost ready to wrap up here, so we only want to give you a chance to tell us about when the show is, uh, tickets, uh, availability, all that type of thing. Well, I do want to say one thing. We've already added a matinee on Saturday afternoon, the 18th of March, 2 o'clock matinee. Uh, that hasn't been advertised yet, but we decided last night the ticket sales are going so well that we added that extra show. So there, altogether, there'll be ten performances, starting on March the third. We do Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon at two. Friday and Saturday nights at seven thirty uh, for three weekends, and then that last weekend we'll have an extra matinee on Saturday afternoon. Very good. Well, that's Oliver opening March 3rd, and uh, there's a Footlight Players located on 1705 Franklin Street in Michigan City. You can go online to find out information about that. Laura and Tom, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air Spotlight. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having us. Thanks. Art on the Air Spotlight and the full one-hour Art on the Air program on Lakeshore Public Radio is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art in the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H, dot com. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP, 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Herb Helm to Art on the Air Herb started a watercolor practice in his 40s and has shown his watercolor paintings in over 50 art exhibitions and competitions throughout the United States. He is a professor of psychology at Andrews University and has been a member of the Department of Behavioral Sciences since 1992. Thank you, Herb, for joining Larry and I on Art on the Air. Welcome. Aloha. Thank you. Well, Herb, how we always like to start off our, our show is I want to know a little bit about our guests and everything. I like your origin story. And, of course, you have kind of a unique one where you didn't take up art right away. But we want to hear about everything from where you grew up, all the types of things before we even get to your art. So I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us about yourself. Um, first 10 years of my life, I actually grew up in uh, Chesterton, uh, where now I'm doing a few classes for, you know, the Chesterton Art Center. Uh, then when I was 10, we moved up to Bering Springs, Michigan, uh, and basically I've lived there most of my life. I spent seven years in the South, uh, in Mississippi and Arkansas, but, um, yeah, I grew up around, around Bering Springs. Um, ironically, I lived on the same street that Muhammad Ali lived on. So, uh, periodically we'd see him jog by, uh, my dog might chase him, um, <laughs> was able to go down and watch him uh, do a little bit of boxing one time. So, uh, but uh, yeah, basically grew, have grown up around the lake most of my life. So that's always played a big role in terms of spending a lot of time out there in the summers. Um, I don't know. Is that, uh, I went to school uh, mostly at Andrews University, uh, spent a little bit of time in England going to school for a semester but uh and did my doctorate down in southern mississippi so yeah so when you were in so you said you didn't start until you know like seriously working on your art until your 40s but during your early education um what was your experiences in your art classes did you enjoy it did you have many Uh, of them that that part i don't really remember so much of i don't remember doing a lot of art classes 
Uh, my mom does do some um, or did some oil and uh, watercolor. She would try to get me to do it every once in a while. But I always thought playing outside was much more uh, fun and important. So um, I, I would pretty much not get involved with it a whole lot. So it really wasn't until my mid to late 40s that um, I decided that I would I would take a shot at it. Yeah. What did that? What was the spark that did that? Uh, probably that I was getting, you know, older and my body couldn't play a racquetball as much as it used to. <laughs> I don't particularly like winters. Um, so I needed to find something to do during that time period. And I would say I always found, you know, probably about watercolor what a lot of people like, the translucency of it. Um, so that's that's sort of where I started. Uh, I also like that I think it's one of the cheaper mediums. In other words, it doesn't dry out, or if it does, I just throw a little bit more water on it and reconstitute it. Um, my first class that uh, I sort of signed up for, I would say that I had a real rah-rah type of teacher. I don't think my work was that good, but she would be going, oh, yeah, that's just really nice stuff, and she'd pick something out of it. And uh, So she was very encouraging, but um, so that probably helped, but but I actually enjoyed the medium. Did you, uh, who just, you know, some of the people you studied with then? Oh, my goodness, that's like throwing at a dartboard. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been taking workshops for probably 20 years and um you know i've done a, most of the major ones that do workshops um starting out probably earlier with roland roy craft um he was an interesting guy because he was near the end of his teaching career and so i probably got two of the last three times that he did it but um uh, Paul Jackson, uh, Frank Webb, Carol Carter. Um, I, I, I was keeping a list at one time, but sort of ran ran out. Um, <laughs> I, I still do with Terry uh, uh, in in Warsaw a little bit. And um, yeah, what about Dale in, Popovich. In... Have you ever taken any of Dale Popovich's classes? Actually, I have not. Um, I've only sort of met him in that we've both been in some um, shows together. Um, I've, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, He's I, so I, actually, amazing. I actually would like to take one with him. I, I like his style. We have to take a trip to the Northwoods of Wisconsin to do that because they both moved up there. And uh, we're uh, okay. uh, good friends, and his wife and I went to school together and everything. But uh, yeah, they're now uh, all settled in their little cabin in the Northwoods, and he. Uh, teaches workshops all over the place, but especially at Dillman's Resort. That's kind of one of his mainstays up there. And so, yeah. And then, of course, one of the other watercolors locally is uh, Kathy Loss Rathburn. I don't know if you've ever uh, crossed paths with her. Uh, only in uh, that we've been in the same shows together at times. So, uh, yeah, but I, I haven't taken anything with her, but I, I'm well aware of her paintings and who you're talking about. So are you, do you favor landscapes or urban scenes? What do you like to paint or all of it? I, I would say uh, I'm pretty eclectic in that. It really doesn't matter a lot. Uh, if anything, I probably do a little bit less in portrait, but um, animals, landscape, urban, uh, any, of, any of those are, are fine with me. I'll do portraits every once in a while, but it, it's probably not one that just jumps out and 
goes me next. <laughs> Do you have a studio space that you work in, like in your home or, or like maybe even at the university there? Or? Um, I have a room in my house that is dedicated to my art stuff, but honestly, it is so packed I can barely walk into it. <laughs> so um, frequently when I'm doing art, I will take what I need out of that room and sit in front of the television and, um, you know, work for... I, I usually either work based on what program is on and if I got time there or I used to throw on CDs and once it had gone through once or twice, uh, then, you know, people would say, how long does it take you to do it? And it's like, I, I don't know. I just sit down with the CD for a while and work on it. And when that CD's over, I'll work next time. So, but I, I do have, but it's, it's really crowded in there. So do you mostly show in, um, when you, in watercolor shows or do you do what? Well, I guess my question more is what informs your choices of where to exhibit? Uh, probably I use mostly how close it is to me. So um, probably I run, you know, uh, Elkhart to like Valparaiso, that area up into St. Joe. Uh, I have done with both uh, Michigan and uh, Indiana watercolor societies, but they're, they're, they tend to be three to four hours away from me. So it's either packing stuff up or a longer drive. So that, that's tended to what, what dictates it more. Done arts festivals before, or is it just submitting? Uh, by I, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by festivals. I have done a few solo shows. Like the Chesterton Art Festival or the Lubeznik Center for the Arts Festival, any of those? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I tend not to do the art art fair ones. So it's more just the the gallery stuff. Yeah. So what made you cross over into teaching? You, you studied, of course, late in life, but uh, what brought you to doing like workshops and things like that, like you did recently at the Chesterton Arts Center? And that's where we met is not so much doing that, but they came in for the uh, Teacher Appreciation Day. And... I, 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 once, I, I was teaching a class in, um, I know this is going to be a long way around, but I was teaching a class in statistics and ended up meeting a lady there who had a gallery in um, Sawyer, at the time that was called uh, the Scarlet Macaw. Mm. And so I started to take some stuff down there with, with uh, her, her place. And um, eventually, because I was doing these workshops, the idea arose, why not take some of what I'm learning in those workshops and start teaching, teaching there with, with her stuff. So I started to do that. And um, eventually Judy at, um, Chesterton Art Center asked me to sort of step in. They used to have uh, Helen Burkett from Florida right, that would right. come Florida. up and do a number of workshops. And sort of when she phased out, they, they sort of put me into the time period that she was typically doing it. And then it sort of went from once a year to now where I'm doing it about quarterly. Tell us about, like, if I was to sign up for your workshop, the first of all, the expectation of, like, uh, what your experience level is. I mean, do you have different levels of that? And uh, what could we expect in a workshop over how many days or whatever like that? So just describe the workshop experience. Yeah, um, I would probably like at least sort of an advanced beginner. But honestly, I will take almost anybody. I've, I've found out that it's almost more important to find somebody who will actually listen to what you're saying and then 
try to replicate that element if they're trying it, a lot of my workshops are more, more what i call paint alongs so um i i will bring in a topic we'll typically have a drawing of it you might do some masking um, and then when you get there i'll demonstrate a certain section and then you you work that section and we try to get as far as we can through that painting so it's almost more important having somebody who um is really good at sort of listening and and following that element you know uh, sometimes you get people that know more and then they sort of go off on their own tangent which is fine with me i i, I really don't mind that <laughs> um but I think, you know, like when I'm taking a workshop, usually when I'm doing that, I'm doing it because I actually want to learn sort of the style of the person that's doing that. And, um, you know, I don't know if that was a flaw in my educational aspect, but what I used to do at the beginning was I would find these different people whose styles were very different from each other and then go, go take a, you know, a few days with them. I, I'm not sure if you it, it would be smarter to find one person and work with them for a while, but but the advantage of that, doing that I found out was that people would say, "Hey, you can't do this with watercolor," you know. And then I'd go to another workshop and they'd be going, "Oh yeah, here's how you do this with that," you know. <laughs> and and so it was like it was great because you'd have all these people sort of contradicting what the other one was telling you you could or couldn't do in watercolor. Um, so my approach to to workshops is actually fairly open in terms of what you're capable of doing with it as a result of that. Um, but I think part of it depends on what you want out of the workshop. You know, if, if you're there to learn a little bit more about composition and take yours, you know, whatever style you have a little further, that's fine. But generally I'm probably getting more what I would call advanced beginners, intermediate types of people who, who are probably trying to work a little bit more on some technique elements. And um, that that's where probably more of the focus is on mine. Well, Herb, I watched, um, I watched your YouTube video on how you see a painting. And so I, I'm, I'm curious, like for you yourself personally, did you, were you the one, two, three, four? I mean, did they, did you go exactly where this artist was hoping you would go or? Okay, I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll back up on that a little bit on that question. Yeah, please, please How give the background started. on it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, that the problem with that YouTube one is, is that you can't really see the marker that I'm using to show. It's a laser and it doesn't show up well in, in there. Um, but that said, uh, in taking from different people, uh, they would often talk about composition or other elements. And I would listen to it and I would go, yeah, that sort of makes sense. But how, how do we really know? Um, and a lot of times when, when we're talking about how you could take the, your, you know, how do artists get people to look where they want, they're often taking dead people and then saying, here's what so-and-so wants you to see in this painting. Well, I thought, first of all, how do you know what a dead person wants? Uh, and while some of this matches things like gestalt, you know, concepts of perception, I thought, why not take a couple of people who are alive, see if they'll tell me where they think people are looking in their paintings. And then actually, ironically, the guy's office who's next to me is a, um, 
the guy who does, uh, or at least in the past, he used to do a fair amount of research and eye tracking. So you don't have to ask people where they're looking. You literally hook them up to the machines. Uh, the machine tracks their eyes, tells you where they're at for how long and all of that type of thing. So I got um, a couple of artists, one being John Salomon. Now, if you're familiar with him, he's he's like one of the, the most tops. <laughs> well-known watercolors. I mean, he's won so many it's, awards and the work is uh, that exquisite. Type of thing. And then I got Terry Armstrong, who's uh, over in Warsaw and a fairly well-known artist there who, who does a lot of different shows and teaching and that type of thing. And so I asked them if they I could use some of their paintings, and they let me pick the ones that I wanted out of there, uh, which I chose for various reasons. And then I asked them to pick where people should be looking in their paintings. So once we got them to actually identify it, we then hooked up various subjects and then ran through and, and created heat maps of where people were looking in in the paintings and where they weren't looking in the paintings and, and trying to see how well people could actually predict, um, you know, what, pe what, what other people would do. Uh, and so we were able to sort of substantiate some of what I was, you know, hearing. And then we got a couple of interesting things that, you know, maybe wasn't exactly what people think of when, you know, when they're doing their paintings. So, uh, like an example of that, we know that uh, people are going to look where there's high contrast, right? Well, John Salomon did this painting called uh, Grant Lanterns, which I think was done in San Francisco. And it's got the lanterns above the street and all of this. And, well, you would think that people would look at the lanterns, especially since this is named Grant Lanterns, right? Well, we find out that one of the heavy spots that people were actually concentrating on was a little red light set off to the side that's really supposed to be sort of a nondescript part of the uh, painting. But because there's a fairly amount of good contrast over there, people spent much more time actually focusing on that than they did the, the, the lanterns. Not me. The first place I went with that one was the lanterns and spent time <laughs> there. Where did you, on that one in particular, where did you, do you remember where you looked first? Oh, I didn't actually hook myself up to this, but I actually have the heat map in front of me here. So what I could tell you is two things that John told us actually panned out really well. He said people tend to look at people. And if you if there's any people in the painting, you'll see that that's true. And the other thing that he told me, because one of the one of the paintings I picked out also um, was one where it was a, like a single figure walking down a, a Chicago street and. There's really not much else there to look at other than the single figure. And, and the whole idea was, would people focus on that one major thing? And what we found out is they actually focused on two things. One is that the heavy part was the figure. But then they also focused off to the right of the person. It was like, yeah, but there's nothing over there, really, except that there's writing. And the other thing that he had mentioned is that people focus on writing. And we found that constantly. And that happened to Grant Lanterns, too, is that. People more than focusing on the lanterns actually were focusing on writing that was occurring on the buildings around it. And uh, my friend's interpretation is people are trying to figure out what's going on in their environment as part of that. And one of the ways that we do that 
and he's a cognitive psychologist, is that we, we look at our environment. And of course, for humans, we read stuff to help us figure out where we're at. You know, we do much of the same thing in theater with lighting design. You know, you make people look where the the eye is drawn to the brightest spot on stage. And so you can, draw, just like what we call the stage picture, you can, can manipulate that. Of course, that's a fluid thing. But uh, like you were just talking about, you can draw the attention to where you want people to look on stage by having light and blackout at the other part. So. <laughs> yeah, I, one of the other ones that I found really interesting is that Terry Anderson had, uh, had done one where... Um, he, um, I'm sorry, Armstrong, not Henderson, where he had done a number of trilliums in a painting. And the irony is that some of the people focused on some trilliums and absolutely ignored others, um, which you, I then can't explain because we still have that high contrast there. In other words, why look at it? So I don't know if you get the same thing in theater lighting. But, you know, if you have multiple spots, it seems that was a painting that, that I'm still struggling on interpreting because it's like, OK, why would you pick that trillium over this trillium? And right. it's not like, you know, it's not like close. It's like one's real heavy in terms of the heat map and one shows almost nothing on the heat map. Um, so that that was an interesting one. It's like, well, how do people make that choice? So, yeah, and that one for me, it was the shadows more than the flower. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so you looked at the pictures? All of them, yes. Yes. Them, I thought it was yeah. so interesting because that first one I was like spot on where he wanted me to look. One, two, three, four, bang. And then the rest of them it was a little more squishy for me. Like um <laughs> my eye was drawn to different places. Like the one with the, the winter scene with the road and the big tree. Well, mm -hmm. I'm down the road and then I sort of, you know, in my periphery kind of notice the tree. But, yeah, I was just like, ooh, where does this road go? <laughs> well, well, yeah, and I, one of the things that we assume, and part of this is because um, we actually took our subjects and put them under two different conditions. One was, look at it like you're at a gallery, and the other one was, we're going to test you later to see what you remember. <laughs> and uh, there were actually some differences depending on whether they were under one condition or another, and so... One of the other conditions that we've thought of would make a lot of difference is whether or not a person has training in art. Because um, largely what we were using was undergraduate students who probably had minimal training in art. And, and the view is, yeah, if we pick somebody who knew something about art and composition and all that, you know, while we would still probably get a lot of the same stuff, we would probably be getting some, some other variations on that. Very briefly, uh, you know, with COVID, how did that impact your uh, art creation? Uh, and, uh, you know, you teach at a university, but then I know that probably impacted that. But how did that impact you in terms of your creation? Was it more creative period or less? Uh, it it might have been slightly less, but um, I don't know if you want to call it creative period. Often my uh, creative period comes because I know a show is coming up and I need <laughs> to get something going if I want to try to get into that one. So uh, once shows shut down to going online more, um, I, I seem to not quite have the same level of interest in terms of putting as much stuff up, out. Well, in just wrapping up here, Herb, uh, we want to know like, if you have any upcoming workshops. This is going to air during, about near the end of February, but uh, you know, in the next few months. Also, how people can get in touch with you. Yeah, um, I think the next one that I have, and they would have, probably have to look on the uh, Chesterton art 
Center website to be sure. I think I've got one in April, a workshop coming up. It's a one-day one. Um, probably the best way to get a hold of me would be to use my um, email, which would be helmage at andrews.edu. And I think you you said you have that posted on your your site. Yeah, we'll have it on your picture on our website, so you can just click on the picture, and it'll take you there. I would like to thank Herb Helm for coming on Art in the Air, sharing his uh, art journey and, of course, starting later in life. And if you want to see him again, he'll be coming up at the Chester Art Center soon, and you can take a workshop from Herb. Thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air. Yeah. Well, thank you thank for you having me. Much. So. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art in the Air Spotlight, or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H, dot com. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP, 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Jeff Manuzak to Art on the Air. Jeff is the Visual Information Specialist for the Indiana Dunes National Park and the Visual Information Design Graphic Designer for the National Park Service. In that capacity, he co-created the Identifying Graphic Logos for well-known sites in the area. Thank you, Jeff, for joining Larry and I on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we enjoy having you. And, you know, how we always start all of our episodes is we always like to know kind of your background story, uh, your origins and where you grew up, where you went to school, uh, you know, elementary all the way through college, uh, some of your other service and how you got there. So I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So, Jeff, tell us about yourself. Okay. Um, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Hammond, Indiana. Uh, grew up in Calumet City, Illinois. Uh, Went to uh, Coolidge in elementary school, and then I, uh, we, our family migrated to uh, Lansing, Illinois, and went to TS South High School. And from there, I ventured out to the middle. Of, or I was in college for a bit at Ray College of Design in Chicago, and then I got into the military, got back out, and then uh, found myself back in this area, and we moved to LaPorte, Indiana. So that was uh, just very quick, but um, that's that's how I got around. You know, Jeff, because in that Army experience, you it was an art-based, there were art-based programs that you were involved in. And so were you painting during that time? Because I just, I, had, I really, really like those um, paintings of, of the military that you do. Thank you. I, I was very lucky in that aspect to uh, the, the land uh, a position in the military, which only two people held um, at a time. Um, it was it was a combat artist. Um, I uh, when I when I joined the military, I scored pretty good on my uh, my ASVAB test, and they asked me what What do you want to be in the military? And I saw the guy sitting across me. He had that nice suit on with the tie, you know, trying to sign me up for my career. I said, that looks pretty good. I Let's try that. So I got in as a uh, 71 Lima, which is a administration specialist. 
And I was on my way to Fort Hood, Texas after my uh, basic training and advanced individual training. And um, my orders got changed and I found myself my very first duty station working in the Pentagon uh, for the uh, four-star general, chief of staff of the Army, Army General Sullivan. Um, it, it was very lucky to be there. Um, and so I, my duties uh, were to, you know, Xerox the papers and get the uh, the generals that are, and the uh, colonels ready who were in that department. Uh, and uh, a Xerox and a color Xerox was a very high-tech thing back then. I'm really dating myself with this. <laughs> so I would just set up the uh, conference rooms, get them ready for their conferences. And um, one day uh, he saw a portrait uh, that I had drawn of my uh, wife and it was sitting on, on my desk and he um, he asked me if I had other art and uh, I said heck yes I, you know, I he goes can you bring it in and of course a, a artist with a portfolio is uh, proud to show it off so I, I brought in um, my artwork and he's like oh my gosh what are you doing here um, uh, we got a position uh, as an um, army artist. Do you paint? And uh, so I brought in some more paintings and stuff like that. And um, next thing you know, I found myself in a studio in Washington, D.C. on 14th and L working as a combat artist uh, for the Center of Military History. All I did was paint. I, I was such a blessing. <laughs> Just what a lucky uh coincidence there. That I, know. I came a breath away from joining the Air Force. Had I known that there was an art possibility <laughs> component to it, my life would be very different now. <laughs> yeah. So Jeff, earlier in your life, did you have any, uh, what was your experience like art in like elementary, middle school, you know, all that through that type of thing? Uh, in, as uh, I'd say about, I could remember coloring and just spending my days and drawing, just getting lost in it. It was it was a it was a joy to do it. Maybe third, fourth grade. I, I just remember just spending time drawing and learning how to shade. Um, the first uh, instance I can remember of actually doing anything with it, we had a, an assignment in art class to draw Abraham Lincoln, and like three months later. Uh, it turns out that I that the teacher enrolled these into a uh, art competition, and I won a little watercolor set, and that's when I was like, "Oh wow, I might be good at art," you know. <laughs> so so I, I just uh, I, I've always enjoyed it. It passed the time. I'd never thought I'd grow into be you know actually make a living as an artist at some point. Uh, it just uh, the cards fell where they were and. Um, I'm just very fortunate to, you know, go through that and get that job. So. Anybody in the family um, involved in the arts? Uh, you know, my mom is, uh, she was always very crafty, but I, I've got to say my daughter, Alexis Manuzak, she can, she runs circles around me and everything she does. She could just look at it and draw it or paint it. And it's uh, that she is very gifted in that aspect. So we'll get back to the Army and you're uh, doing, well, you moved from the Pentagon to the art studio. So how long did you serve there? Well, and we, we've seen some of the work that you've done, but then what happens after that? Okay, so in the, um, 
Hang I was in the army from '92 to 2001, and um, so I'm working as a combat artist in, in the studio. And the um, the general goes, uh, "Hey, you, you know, um, you should be working in the career field that's closest to um, art, and uh, which is a multimedia illustrator for the military." And we looked at the, uh, the opportunities. They were full. And he goes, no, they're not. We're going to get you in. <laughs> so uh, the next thing, you know, I was um, into, um, I was into the uh, defense information school, getting retrained to be a design, multimedia designer for the military. And at this point, I've already had my degree from uh, Ray College of Design, um, and the sergeant major saw me going through as a school, the sergeant major of the school there. And he goes, when they're done with you over there, you're going to come back here and teach graphic design for the military. So as a student, I was already picked for my next assignment. <laughs> and um, that, that was uh, a wonderful opportunity again. So when I got uh, finished with the combat art, um, they ran me through the instructor training course. They taught me how to be a teacher and develop curriculum. And uh, I spent the next couple of years, uh, four years, uh, teaching graphic design for the military. And then um, once I, I, I had to make a decision to stay in the military or get out because I, I was there for nine years, four months, and I started raising my family and they were the kids were starting to grow up and realize we're moving, we're moving. Um, so I, uh, I decided to get out and get back to LaPorte. And I um, got out and I, I used to teach at Illinois Institute of Art, uh, a couple of courses there. And then I taught at Westwood College, which was a trade school, basically teaching software um, like Adobe, the design software, Adobe right. uh, Photoshop, Illustrator, Premiere. And uh, then, my, believe it or not, my com uh, combat buddy, uh, combat artist buddy, goes, hey, Jeff, you live near the dunes, don't you? I said, yeah, I'm pretty close to the dunes. <laughs> he goes, there's a government job as a visual information specialist. You ought to check it out. I'm like, ah. So I go there and I look at the, you know, the, the resume to look at, you know, the usajobs.gov. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so long to fill this thing out. You know, all the, all the paperwork. Well, I, I felt it out and I just totally forgot about it. Like three months later, I get a call and it's um, the chief of interpretation giving me a call and uh, running me through the uh, two hour interview process. And next thing you know, I was at the dunes uh, working as a visual information specialist doing their graphic design and their publications and website and social media. So why don't you expand on exactly what you do as that? Uh, I know having trouble hooking up with you because you're out there so busy and doing things, but uh, give us a broader view of, you know, what your day looks like doing that. Uh, anything that you see at the uh, dunes, like if you walk up to a sign uh, at, at Indiana Dunes National Park, uh, chances are that uh, we've created it. Um, uh, there's two of us uh, designers. There's Wesley Butler, who is a great designer as well. He, we would um, take the photos of the um, of what we needed on the images. So we we do photography. We would draw out the trail maps. We would do the layout for it, and we'd uh, put all the graphics together. 
So if you arrive at a site at Indiana Dunes National Park and you're reading about the trail or you're reading about the park on those big waysides, it came out of our shop. Um, we also handle all the graphics uh, for like the publications, uh, any, um, a lot of the trinkets sold at the store, like the logos and um, things like that are generated out of our office. We do the uh, Singing Sands newspaper, which is the Indiana Dunes National Park guide. Um, so we lay that entire thing out. I'd say 70% of the photographs were taken by us and, and put in there and all the graphics for that. We've done things from designing the side of our little shuttle buses. Um, uh, we do our videos, our um, we run the on-sell program where you can dial a number and listen to somebody talk, other uh, narrations. We also um, contribute to our uh, National Park Service Indiana Dunes app. Uh, so we right. feed that with graphics and photos and things like that. So very blessed again, very versatile, uh, jack of all trades, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's a great, it's a great opportunity. So Jeff, can you give us some background on the artist in residency program and and were you involved in starting that? I was not involved in starting it. Uh, the artist in residence program is um, where artists are invited to come to a national park and uh, they can stay, you know, it differences uh, throughout uh, the national parks, which ones are doing it. But they can stay from like a week to a month and... Um, they, they're provided, some are provided housing, but they just stay inside of the dunes and they are, are inside of the park and they paint. Um, and it's a way for them to show the inspiration of the scenic uh, vistas that the park has. It's a way to preserve uh, what the park, uh, the scenic views that the park had. It's a way uh, for the artists uh, to use art to educate visitors of what's in the park. Uh, so it's, a, it's basically an exchange of time uh, for, a, uh, uh, for art. Um, some artists in residence uh, programs don't even require that you leave a piece of art behind. Um, they're just there to support the, uh, the inspiration uh, that the, uh, the parks, um, uh, the inspiration and effects that the parks have on uh, people and places. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP, 103.1 FM. You recently had an exhibit at the Chester and Arts Center, which is still going to be running uh, when this interview runs. So tell us a little bit about that process of selecting it. I think those were a, a wide variety of artists, and you know, how, I think you may have been involved in the curating of it, but tell us about that exhibit. Uh, the exhibit is at the Cheston Art Center in uh, Chesterton, Chesterton, Indiana. It is a sense of place. And um, I wanted some place to bring the art beyond our visitor center. So I um, stopped in at the uh, art center there and I uh, met Hannah. And uh, she thought it was a great idea to uh, get together and uh, have an exhibit. And we started talking, and uh, she showed her the collection and all the people and gave her a little history and background. And 
she selected some pieces uh, that would fill the show. And I believe we have 33 or 34 pieces there. Um, a majority of that is from the last three years of the Artists in Residence program. We had about 16 artists in the last three years. Um, skipping COVID, of course, we had to shut down the program for COVID. But uh, we wanted to exhibit their their um, art in one in one place as well, kind of like an unveiling since they were uh, in my office and other places <laughs> that the public don't get to see it. So that exhibit runs through uh, what March. March 1st. March 1st. So we can still, if you get into Chester and Art Center, you can still see that. And you had a great opening day. I was there for the uh, exhibit opening, and that's something. Well, that brings us to the next question is, uh, you know, artists also listen to this program and art enthusiasts. Um, tell us a little bit about how they might become, I, I think you're opening up the two, 2023 Artists in Residence uh, application process. Tell us a little bit about that process and how that goes. Uh, so uh, we do a call for entry. And we post it on our Facebook page. Um, so if you just uh, search Indiana Dunes National Park on the Facebook page, it'll pop up and you'll see a call for entries. Uh, which, uh, and if you click that button, it'll lead you to our web page. Uh, and on there, you'll find the application. Um, we are running, uh, we have the call for entries open until uh, March first postmark or we have to receive the application by March 8th of 2023. How long is the residency? So, okay, that's a tr normally it's two weeks and we offer a uh, housing in the park. Um, there um, might be a greater need for the housing at the time and um, we might have to shorten the residence residency to one week and uh, offer a hotel uh, stay uh, in a nearby hotel instead. Um, so it's uh, it's uh, it's at the needs of the park, but thankfully we have a leadership at the park that really wants to support the program. So there will definitely be a residency. We just don't know what the allocated space and needs are gonna be at this time. On the application we have, uh, it could either be a two week or a one week. Um, and, uh, and once we figure out uh, the needs for the, the park, um, we'll, we'll be able to best determine that. What type of artists are you looking for? I mean, you, you said painters, but I, th I think go I know it goes broader than that. So tell us oh, about Oh, yes. Some writing. Can you be a poet or a... Yes. Um, one of our goals right now, though, is we're, we are leaning more towards the painters and uh, the visual arts. Um, uh, because we would love to create a coffee table book uh, with with the arts uh, that were um, were created during the residency. Uh, currently, we have about eighty four uh, artworks, and our goal is to get to one hundred and create that coffee table book that uh, you know that we can uh, share with the uh, visitors, and um, maybe we can have a partner sell a book or uh, something like uh, you know make postcards or posters out of them and uh, be a nice fundraiser for the national parks. Right. Do you have like events like for plein air artists that like to come in the park and, and I don't know if that's a formal thing or maybe they just uh, show up and do a plein air event? Oh, yes. Uh, we have different groups that frequent the, the, the parks. Uh, they, they call them paint outs and they, they come in and it's, it's the very essence of what the artist in residency program is supporting and why we have it is to 
it's a better connection with the community. And now we have people returning to the parks and they're getting in groups and it's a, it's, it's great to see it. And if you're walking around on a summer day, chances are you're going to bump into somebody taking a photo, you know, with a camera, you know, a photographer or someone painting or just jotting down in a journal, you know, all aspects of art. Has the, the fee thing uh, complicated maybe access to some of the people that they used to show up to a lot of these places for free? And it's mostly a parking thing, but is that complicated, the access at all? Uh, you know, the, our numbers are, are still the same. Um, I don't think it's really impacted it. Uh, we are a confusing park because there's Indiana Dunes National Park. There's Indiana Dunes State Park, which are right next to each other. Um, so I think people get confused in that aspect. Um, the fee process for the national park is getting easier. Um, it's, there's a learning curve for the staff as well, but I think, uh, it's pretty simple to, to purchase a pass. And, right. Well, know, and guys like me have their senior pass. So I just, uh, actually, actually I stick a copy of it in the window. So <laughs> yes. are you still personally painting? No, but it's on, it's on my list. And I, I, I love the, the, the best part of my job is working with the artists and residents that come, come here. Uh, cause I kind of live through their, their, uh, their creations. Um, I give them a tour on the first or second day that they're here and we just talk all things art and we talk about the beautiful, you know, I show them the different places that, uh, other people might not know of, uh, for views. Once I figure out what they want to paint, I kind of lead them in that direction show them the hot spots or the the places uh, but i will i will um i find my creativity through the graphic design um things that i create uh, so, for the park well maybe you could share with the audience without showing those i mean because it's a radio show where are some of the hot spots that are often missed in the park oh gosh um well uh cole's bog i it's it's, it's a pretty popular trail um, Miller Woods, um, that park. And if you walked it once, uh, try to do it once in different seasons. You got to do it four different times and just really the personality of the, the loops and the, the trails uh, take on a different different aspect altogether with the lighting and the right. backdrop. That sounds like a, like a great project that could be an artist in residence that maybe not their specific time they're there, but actually document the four seasons of some aspect of it. And I, I know I'm working on the tropical house. I've got uh, like three of the seasons down and almost four of them where I've shot it and different things and every uh, aspect of that. And uh, uh, yeah, that's great. Well, we're just about a minute and a half left here. So tell us a little bit more about uh, how they can get in touch with you and also about the program and uh, just kind of tell us more about that. Sure. The, um, the Artists in Residence program falls underneath the volunteer uh, program, so it's, it's a bit tricky to find on our website. If you go to Indiana Dunes um, uh, National Park website, nps.gov forward slash indu, you would navigate underneath the uh, work with the park, and then you go to the volunteer, and you'll see the Artists in Residence program uh, right there. Um, so you'll, you'll see all the application um, opportunities. You'll see the past um, artists uh, work there. You'll see the whole gallery. Um, that's how you can get in touch with the, uh, the artists in residence program if you'd like to. And uh, they can also probably give you a call or email you. I, I think that's available on the, the website. And I think if you just do a Google search, that, that will come up too, like just artists in residence at the dunes. Correct. Or just call the uh, National Park Visitor Center and ask for uh, Jeff Manzak, and they'll give you all the information. 
uh, you'll need to get in touch with me. So. Well, you know, we appreciate you taking time to share this on Art in the Air. The exhibit was great at Chester Art Center. I really enjoyed seeing that. And being a photographer and having shot a lot of the area, Dunes area, it's been a great inspiration. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Art. That's Jeff Manusak, who is the visual arts from uh, Indiana Dunes National Park. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and telling us about your background and about the parks. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. We'd like to thank our guest this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at WVLP.org, and every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, also streaming live at LakeshorePublicRadio.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Radio. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio, and Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Art in the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker, and for WVLP, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art on the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. Or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself through art, and show the world